seem to change topics here, but I really do think we're in the same context. So remember this situation with the blind man, and particularly what they did to him. They kicked him out of the synagogue, and Jesus coming to him and receiving him. It seems to me like that's an appropriate context for the sermon that Jesus is about to preach. We're going to read the sort of the parable, and then we're going to read the explanation, if you want to call it that. So, do we need to turn these on? Alright, so let's, uh, let's read in uh, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. I tell you the truth, the man who goes not into the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listens to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Okay, so he talks to them about uh, a shepherd and a thief. Now, they would have had probably considerable uh, experiential knowledge of sheep and shepherds, but this seems pretty straightforward. I mean, what's the difference between a thief and a shepherd in verses 1 and 2? Yeah, how they get in. How does the shepherd get in? By the door. How does the thief get in? Yeah, he's going to climb up some other way. He is not straightforward. He's getting in uh, in in some other kind of a way. The real shepherd doesn't have anything to hide. You know, he doesn't have to be secretive. He doesn't have to be sneaky. He can just come in uh, in a proper way. Now, You know, he starts talking here about sheep and shepherds and perhaps we ought to go back and think about the Old Testament context for a second. Uh, Was there anything much discussion about shepherds and sheep in the Old Testament? Ezekiel 34? Psalm 23 in a sense, yes. And several passages like Ezekiel 34, like uh, Jeremiah 23 and Zechariah 11 and Isaiah 56 and so forth, that talk about bad shepherds. And, And when he talked about bad shepherds in those passages, he was talking about Israel's spiritual leaders, like the priests, the prophets, maybe even the kings. And often they did not handle the flock properly. But the flock were the people and the shepherds were the spiritual leaders. So I think you can see that same idea here. When he talks about the shepherd, you're talking about the one God's appointed to take care of God's people. But you've got the thieves and the robbers that are coming up some other way. They have ulterior motives. Now, in the context of what we just read, who's the sheep? In the context of what we just read. The blind man, who's the shepherd? And who are the thieves? The Pharisees, yeah. I think that's uh, pretty easy for us to see. Now, he talks about, in verse 3, that the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You see the strong bond, 
the trust bond between the sheep and the shepherd. And you can kind of see that in what developed between Jesus and the blind man as Jesus approached him and talked to him. He worships Jesus and so forth. And that's the kind of relationship that the sheep should have with the shepherd. He goes ahead of them. They follow him because they know his voice. Now a stranger, they don't follow. They flee from him. So you've got a case here of the true shepherd and the true sheep and the closeness between them and the fact that the sheep follow the shepherd's voice. Now he's going to elaborate all of this. This is almost just telling the parable and then we're going to have the explanation you know, to this parable. But all of this um, is, is kind of the, back, uh, the background is, is the healing of the blind man. It says that they did not understand these things. So Jesus needs to give an explanation. Do you have any questions or comments about just the you know, statement of the parable through verse 6. Matt. If the sheep is just the blind man, why is it for us? Well, I mean, the blind man is the illustration of the sheep in chapter 9. It's not that he's the only one. There are plenty of other people that Jesus is a shepherd of. Other comments or questions? Yes, Emily. Don't know. Don't, I don't think it's important. Part of the imagery. Brigham? So the sheep we're talking is just about what would be put before those whom God gives. Jesus, we're not talking about everybody in the world. Just about those I think the sheep are those that have that special bond with the shepherd. He's going to, really he's going to elaborate on a lot of these things later on in the chapter, including the sheep in another context. Uh, and, and he's going to define the sheep by those who hear and follow Jesus. Wes? Uh, the hired man later on, who else like in more biblical sense that Well, people who don't have real concern for the sheep. People who are looking out for themselves, perhaps trying to lead God's people, but in a selfish way. Could be, yes. Other thoughts? Okay, look at some of the application of this then. 7 to 18. And other sheep I have, not of this world, them also I must bring, 
Okay. <clears throat> Jesus says that I'm the door of the sheep. Now, you have to have some flexibility in the use of the figures in uh, John. I mean, Jesus is the bread, and Jesus gives the bread in John 6.35 and John 6.51. Jesus speaks the truth, and he is the truth. Jesus shows the way, and he is the way. Jesus enters through the door, and he is the door. It depends on what angle you're looking at. Jesus fulfills many different roles. And so from this perspective, he's seeing himself as being the door to the sheep. And uh, as the door, what's his function? They enter what? The, the fold of God. Yeah, Jesus is the, is the access. He's the way man reach the Father and reach life, reach salvation. Now, he's, he is the way to, to spiritual nourishment. He is the single means of access to God. And uh, so if you don't come through Jesus, you don't get into these spiritual blessings. Uh, if anyone enters through me, he'll be saved. We'll go in and out and find pasture. Uh, so Jesus is the source of spiritual life and relationship with God for the sheep. He's come, in verse 10, that they might have life and have it abundantly. I mean, what is, you know, the thief and the robber, what, is, what has he come to do? Steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus comes to give life. So the others come to take life. Jesus is there to give life. Again, such a, such a key theme in the book and such a contrast between Jesus and other kinds of teachers and spiritual leaders that aren't there for the same purpose and don't have the same results. All right, comments and questions through verse 10. John. Um, the more abundantly in verse 10, how, how would they have life more abundantly uh, rather than not having life at all? Well, I think he's just going to give them even a greater and fuller and richer life with God. Yes? Uh, does that mean um, in verse 15, and I laid down my life for the sheep? Does it mean like I died on the cross? Oh. Yeah. Yes, I think it is. We'll talk about that here in a second. So you see in 7 to 10, Jesus is the door. Now look at 11 to 18. Jesus is the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do in verse 11? Yeah, he is willing to sacrifice himself for the sheep. In contrast to who? Not here in contrast to the thief. The hireling. What's a hireling? Yeah, the guy who's hired to work with the sheep. 
to take care of the sheep. Now, what about that guy who takes care of the sheep? He's just, you know, getting a salary or he's getting paid by the hour. What happens when danger comes? Why? Yeah, they're not his sheep. You know, do what? It's not in his job description. That's exactly right. You know, he's really only interested in himself and the money. Things get too dangerous, he's out of there. Don't care about the sheep. You know, but the true shepherd, he'd give himself for the sheep. He died for the sheep. They're, he loves those sheep. They're his sheep. There's such a contrast between Jesus and these other religious leaders. They didn't care anything about the sheep. They didn't care about the blind man. They cared about themselves. They cared about their position. Now, there's this, this close connection. In verse 14, he says again, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That, that's an amazing statement. Did you, did you hear that in verse 14 and 15? What is the comparison that Jesus uses to compare the closeness he has with his sheep? Isn't that amazing? Wow! How close are Jesus and the Father? Wow, we've been seeing that all through. I mean, you just can't you can't fathom the closeness between Jesus and his Father. That's the kind of closeness Jesus has with his sheep. That is remarkable. That is amazing. That's astounding. That Jesus would, would have that, I don't know, that, that intimate relationship, that, that just so much love. That, that's really a remarkable statement. I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. We're that close. One of the remarkable things about the Gospels is it really shows the closeness God has and wants to have with his people in a way that is just so astonishing. Wow! You just never imagine that the Father would seek a closeness like this or that Jesus would seek a closeness like this with us. But, but that's the intimacy between the sheep and the shepherd. And uh, again, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He's going to say that over and over again. I mean, there's the supreme sacrificing spirit of a shepherd who cares about the sheep. He'll give himself for them. He loves them. They're, they're like his own family. And it's not just these sheep either. There's where Kayla's question comes in. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They'll hear my voice and they'll, he'll incorporate them into the one flock with the one shepherd. And I think he is talking about the Gentiles. I think he knows what's going to happen and there's some other sheep that are going to come in and be, be joined in complete unity with the sheep he already has to form one flock with one shepherd. And then he comes back again in 17 and 18 and talks about him laying down his life. Now, there's several things about 17 and 18 that are amazing, but one of them is in verse 17 when he says, for this reason the Father loves me. Why does the Father love Jesus? That is mind-boggling. The Father loves Jesus 
Because Jesus fulfills the Father's will and serves us. The Father loves Jesus because Jesus is willing to die for us. Alright, think about somebody you really, 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 really care about a lot. Maybe the person that you care about the most in this world. You really do. And you just, you're so concerned for them. They mean so much to you. How do you feel about somebody who makes a great sacrifice to help them? Don't you love that person? Oh man, you just feel such a bond with that person because they helped, they loved, they sacrificed themselves for the one that you care so much about. So to me, this tells you how much the Father really cares about us. When it says that for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life so I may take it up again. And he said all through here he lays down his life for the sheep. Not just that Jesus was willing to lay down his life but he lays down his life for the sheep. That's why God loves him so much. And another thing you see in this is verse 18 no one has taken it away from me. He makes it clear He gives it. He lays down his life on his own initiative and nobody else takes it from him. What does that tell you about the crucifixion? Voluntary. Voluntary. Yeah. Jesus was in complete command of the whole situation. This was not some terrible accident that caught him off guard. This was his purposeful, determined decision to give himself because he chose to give himself. Praise God. Isn't he an amazing shepherd? A lot of stuff in all that. Comments and questions? Travis. Um, In this, it kind of just should humble us all to see the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. Yes. And we see he knew exactly what he had to do and we have what we're supposed to do in the Word. And yet, we cower down to simple situations when the biggest situation, giving his own life, he willingly went forth. And yet, we have nothing comparable in our lives to that persecution. And yet, we do not do close to the job that he did. What an awesome Savior we have. Amen. We do indeed. Uh, Wes. Do you think that that shepherd over the sheep is more so than a common man, even though in that time that was their livelihood, which could have led to dying, which they would get their life for those sheep. Do you think this is more so that the people hearing this would be surprised by it? Well, he's the model shepherd. He's the ideal shepherd. So, yes, in that sense. I don't know how surprised, but he he is the reality that every shepherd would strive to be. Alan. Um, I guess, like, the Father loves Jesus because he gave his life for us. Um, The Father really loves us when we give our lives for those we need the most. Okay. Good point. Definitely. Micah. In uh, verses 12 and 13, whenever it talks about the hirelings, in this 
parable, would this be in relation with the disciples or apostles, or would it be perhaps other uh, sources of salvation that people may turn to? Perhaps that. Perhaps those that really don't care, maybe the false teachers, maybe the Pharisees, or whoever. But, but there are those, I mean, in one sense, who would care about the sheep ever like Jesus does? So in one sense, it's the greatest possible, you know, because Jesus is different from everyone. But perhaps the Pharisees would fit in here. The other thing is that Jesus, like you're saying, um, Jesus would lay down his life for the sheep. Like, you know, what you're saying is that he would lay down for Christians, for his followers. You know, the Christians sin against him sometimes. He's still loving like your father. That's what we need to do. We need to love our enemies. They would sin against us, but we should love our enemies like he loves his Amen. John? Because we could talk about just how nasty sheep are and stupid and, you know, and just how they're high maintenance, you gotta cut their hair off and stuff. <laughs> but he goes through all the trouble because he loves the sheep. You know, we're nothing, you know. And it also reminds me of just that. that Christ died for us while we were sinners. You know, there's nothing in us, nothing special about the sheep. Uh, but he laid down his life for us. Amen. Micah. Uh, I'd like to see how, uh, it's nice to see how the relationship that he's talking about us to him is his relationship between him and God. How we are the sheep to the shepherd and he's the lamb of God. And, um, you know, we are to sacrifice our lives for him and do all we can when he gave his life for us. Uh, I like to see the, the, um, the quality in the, in the relationship with the shepherd to the master. Or I mean, I the sheep to the master. Mm-hmm. Good point. Other thoughts? So look at the effect of this teaching, 19 to 21. There arose a division again among the Jews because of these words, and many of them said, He has a demon, he's mad, why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the same as one possessed with a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Good question, don't you think? Demon would be more likely to put the eyes of, the, uh, eyes of a seeing person out than to open the eyes of the blind, it seems to me. So I think that's a good question. Always Jesus' presence divides men. There's always controversy. Whenever Jesus, he's kind of a lightning rod for controversy. And so, you know, he comes and he strikes the line of division. Comments or questions? Tip. I mean, being moved and affected by this display of God's love Jesus, and then seeing how this, uh, they reacted to it, it's, it's um, a discouraging and sad thing. You know, so many people don't benefit from this, and it's just a, it's just a thing about. Good point. Amen. Okay. Um, we've moved to a new feast now. You know, I really think probably. We ought to see all of this from 7 through 10, 21 as kind of associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm not sure about that, but I don't see any particular reason to divide that. But now we've got the Feast of Dedication. We'll talk about that a little bit. So 22 to 30. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple and saw him in the porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, 
How long do you keep us in death? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow them. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So you've got the Feast of the Dedication here. What feast was that? Where do you read about that in the Old Testament? In the first and second Maccabees. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. You don't read about it in the Old Testament. Uh, this was a feast that originated in the intertestamental period when Judas Maccabeus routed Antiochus Epiphanes and reconsecrated the temple. It's our feast of Hanukkah. And so it was con connected with sort of the del deliverance of the temple again. And uh, it's kind of an interesting time for Jesus because they're rejecting him as their deliverer. The text says it was winter. Now, do you, remember, do you know what month Hanukkah usually is in? December. So you can see that it's winter. But, you know, if you know when the Feast of Hanukkah is, you know it's winter. I mean, how often does he say, you know, it's a Passover spring. It's tabernacles, it's fall. You know, I mean, you know, yeah, it's winter. Why say so? Could be. Why do they need to? Roger. The people are being very cold for Jesus. I think so. <laughs> You're more insightful than what you realized, Roger. Yeah. yeah, I think these... You know, this is a lot like what he'll say in chapter 13, verse 30. Where when Judas goes out, he says, it was night. Well, as we already mentioned, kind of uh, alluded to, well, we already pretty well figured out it probably been night. I mean, it was after the supper and all that. But it was night. He, he draws our attention to that because it was a dark deed. I mean, this is the power of darkness working on the Savior. Well, I think the same thing here. He tells us it was winter. It's a hint of the spiritual climate. You know, this was... Things were cold, not just physically, but, but with the Jews. And, and you'll see that, wow, uh, as we continue through the rest of the chapter, it's, it is. So, I, you know, personally, that seems like a pretty uh, good reason for him to say that. Amen. Leave <laughs> <laughs> it to Roger. <laughs> But you don't have to agree with Roger and I. <laughs> so, the Jews gather around him and says, all right, we're ready for you to tell us and not keep us in suspense any longer. Are you really the Christ? Now, why do they want him to say that? Why are they questioning that right here? Do they really want to know if he's the Christ now? What are they trying to do? I have something to hold you. Yes, incriminate him. 
blasphemy. Because it never has been very clear to me how they would think it would be blasphemy to claim to be the Christ. Weren't they thinking sooner or later the Christ would come? Is everyone who claims to be the Christ automatically blaspheming? And if so, what do they do when the real thing comes on the scene? But at any rate, that's what they would have said. But Jesus just says, I've already told you. You know, you don't believe then believe the works. I mean, at least look at what I'm doing. That ought to tell you something. But he says, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. We're right back to that idea. If they don't follow Jesus, think about this. If they don't follow Jesus, it's not because he's not the shepherd. He is the shepherd. Because they're not the sheep. Jesus doesn't look around and say, oh man, there's not hardly anybody following me. I don't know what I did wrong. I, I, I got to go back and, and reread the script. Something happened. No. He's got his sheep. They're not following because they're not his sheep. His sheep hear his voice and he knows them and they follow him. Those are his sheep. Now, that means the sheep are not some arbitrarily, unconditionally elected people. No, the sheep are the people who hear his voice, who have an ear for what he says, and they follow him. Those are his sheep. These guys aren't. They don't listen to him. They don't follow him. They're not his sheep. They're cold toward him. He gives eternal life to them, and he says they will never perish. There is no power in the world that can break the bond between the shepherd and his sheep. There is security in Jesus. My Father who is great. He said, no one will snatch them out of my hand for my Father who has given them, them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You know, if, if you wonder whether Jesus is strong enough to keep us, well, the Father is. He's got the Father behind him as well. You know, who's going to be able to snatch us out of the hand of Jesus, out of the hand of the Father. No one. He can protect his sheep, and so can the Father. You know, you've got that, that confidence, that encouragement, that assurance that's, that's very uplifting. Now, does this mean that it's impossible for us to leave the Lord and be lost after we've already been saved. Is it impossible to apostatize? No. So what's this saying? If, it's not, if, if you can leave the, the Lord and leave his protection, what's this saying? You can snatch yourself out of it. You can, yeah, exactly. A sheep just abandoning the fold is not the same thing as a wolf coming in and getting them and taking them out. God will not force us to stay with him against our will. And there's plenty of passages to show that. Judas might be an example. And certainly the story he's going to tell in John 15, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and burned. So it's possible to leave. He won't force us. But there's nothing that will take us away from him. No power on earth or in heaven is able to do that. 
And so he gives us real encouragement. Here's who his sheep are, and here's the safety they have when they are with the shepherd. And then he says, I and the Father are one. You know, whether it's Jesus' hand or the Father's hand, it's really all the same thing. They are one. Comments and questions through verse 30. David? Do you think he's saying it to the Jews to remind Yes, I think so. Chris. Maybe to say that a little clearer, as long as we are doing God's will, nothing else can snatch us from Him, can overpower the Good Shepherd and take us away. Right. Not that there isn't some other force that can come in and, and cause us to stray away. And, and Yeah, some force might seduce us, Yes. but they couldn't take us away against our will. If against we're willing to stay with the Lord, right. He'll keep us. So it all depends on our willingness to continue hearing his voice and following him. If we'll do that, we're secure. If we quit hearing his voice and following him, then we leave. You know, if you don't follow the shepherd, where do you go? Somewhere, somewhere else. You know, you think about, think about the sheep in the flock. You know, being protected by a shepherd. A good, you know, shepherd will lay down his life. He's a good shepherd. He's able to, to keep the sheep. What if the sheep wanders off? That the all bets are off then. You know, he's not with the shepherd. So the but the point here is you can trust him. There's security. You know, there's not anybody who will snatch you out of his hand. Travis. Um, when reading this I often think that in our lives and I mean in my life too, we seek refuge in these worldly things and these human things, which are all fallible. And for some reason, we go to the things to give us comfort when the Lord is who gives us comfort. Sure. Amen. And it just seems time after time we go to the things that are fallible, but why don't we just go to the thing that is not fallible and that will not corrupt? Amen. And lose ourselves and be one in Him. Now, what he's saying goes with Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Treasures on here of all that's whatever, but treasures on earth. I see treasures on here of all that's whatever, but treasures in heaven will last here on whoever in your heart. And do what do what God says, like you were saying. Try to <coughs> try to make a purpose. Pray God. See so if you do it here, you won't you do destruction like you're saying, but it's like a branch. Got the thoughts? John? Okay. Anybody else? Eric? You know, Jesus even gave his disciples, you know, for me, he told them, he indicated that it is a voluntary thing to follow him because he gave them an opportunity to not follow him. He said, you know, do you want to go away as well? It's a voluntary thing. Definitely. John? How are you going to use Judas as an example? He fell away. He was one of the sheep and was lost. He was, so he was one of He was with them at least. Right. I was going to ask you, like we've already read about this, but it says that he was chosen. Jesus chose, you know, and somebody might say, well, he was, he was, I don't know, that, or he was, um, yeah, you know, okay. I think that's Sounds good. Sounds okay to me. Okay. I don't have any objection to that. Anything else? 
Okay, 31 to try to do to him? Stone him. Wonder why? They claim he's guilty of blasphemy. It's interesting. Jesus' calmness when they got the stones in their hand to throw at him. He just says, I showed you many good works of the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? You know, and that question sort of paralyzes them. They kind of feel the need to answer that. Like, you know, which good work are you stoning me for anyhow? <laughs> Jesus' calmness is amazing. How can he be so calm in this situation? Absolutely, the hour's not yet come. I mean, everything's on the Father's agenda. You know, everything will happen at the right moment. This isn't the time yet. So he knows nothing's going to happen. So he's able to just calmly say, you know, which good work are you stoning me for? That's not for a good work, it's for the blasphemy. You know, you're being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answers that. He says, well look, in Psalm 82, 6, it's, it called men gods. If that's true, then why would you say that I'm blaspheming I, whom the one is the one that the Father sanctified and sent in the world, why would you say that I'm blaspheming when I say I'm the Son of God? I mean, if God was willing to use the term gods for man in Psalm 82 6, how much more Jesus, with all that he is, has the right to be called the Son of God? Now, that's a remarkable argument in this sense. How many of you? find Psalm 82 to be your favorite psalm. Anybody here know anything about Psalm 82? Really? You guys need to study the psalms a little bit. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, of all the psalms, if I said, does anybody here know anything about Psalm 23, about Psalm 2, about Psalm 103, about Psalm 119, 19... 22, etc. Et I could go through a lot. 32, 51, you know, a lot of you guys, 150, you know some of about a lot of Psalms. 139, you know, but, but nobody raised their hand that they know anything about Psalm 82. And yet, and, and he picks out kind of a, you know, relatively obscure clause in the middle of the Psalm. And what does he say about that clause in verse 35? Yeah. If a casual clause in a run-of-the-mill psalm can't be broken, there's not anything in the word that can be broken. It is all absolutely true. Jesus had a very high view 
of the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. He believed not even that phrase in Psalm 82, 6 of all places could be broken. It's true. Every word God spoke is true. That's what Jesus believed about. One of the things that is, I think, a profitable way to look at how to defend the scriptures is to just start with Jesus. Build the case based on the evidence for Jesus and who he was. And based on that, you can prove the scriptures. If Jesus really is the son of God, then what he says you can trust. And what he said about the scriptures is they can't be broken. That, that was Jesus' view of the scriptures. So, he says, if you don't believe me, at least believe my works. And they're still trying to grab him and he, he escapes. He, he constantly is doing that. Whether that's with God's miraculous intervention or not, he seems to elude them on several occasions. Comments and questions through verse 39. Right. I guess we'd have to go back to Psalm 82 for the context, but what did he mean when he said, you are gods? Obviously, if he said it, we must be, but in many other senses, we are not at all God. Yes, well, that's a good question, and there is a good bit of a debate about that. He may have been talking about the rulers of Israel as being gods in the sense that they were representatives of God. There's some other suggestions about that when you study Psalm 82, but that's probably as good as it is. So, you know, and there were gods in the sense that they stood for God. They, they, they exercised the authority of God. Rick. Does he mean for us to get anything else from Psalm 82, for instance? I mean, he was talking about leaders who weren't doing their job in Psalm 82 as well. Well, it's not out of the question, though that doesn't seem to be the purpose that he's using in connection with it. But it's not out of the question. Micah. A point that I like to think about whenever we talk about the gospel is Jesus quotes scriptures that whenever he points to, like, these psalms, he doesn't just think about that one thing that he says, but he's referring to the entire thing. So in Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7, it says, You are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so he references how he is God, and yet he does fall like man. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I like on verse 38. That he's saying, if you do not believe me, you still choose to believe my works. He still is justified by his works. He, I mean, he, he went out either way. They have him on that. Got a lot of evidence for him, don't we? Daniel? I was going to say, I think that verse is helpful for what you're talking about. Like not just believing, because uh, the things that are being done, but having a deeper faith. that he says, uh, um, but I do them even though you believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So the, the works were done, not just to believe these wonders, but they realized that Jesus was one with the Father. They realized who he was and seek that from him, not just be amazing with him. Good point. Speak. I'm make up my mind. Um, but uh, did Jews use that to say that God or Jesus didn't claim to be God? 
I don't think so. I don't know. I've heard that, but I didn't know if that's a good point. Because they say that, well, all Jews should say that they're sons of God, so Jesus isn't claiming deity. They're missing the point. But I mean, Verse 30 pretty well nails down who he was. Eric? Um, that was kind of what I was going to say, but I just didn't want to say that they're claiming deity. Um, you know, is he like? It seems like he's almost comparing, or uh, saying since you were since you were called gods, then I'm a god in the same way. I think he's saying he's God in the greater way. You know, if they had a claim to be called gods, how much more he as the one the Father sanctified and sent into the world should have the right to call the Son of God. So I think he's saying. You know, he's in a much higher position than they are. Why are they thinking he's blasphemy? Well, to challenge their argument that he's blasphemy. They didn't think that the writer of Psalm 82 was blasphemy. When he called people who were in the final analysis men, gods, so why would they think that Jesus in all of his exalted position would be blaspheming when he's calling himself the son of God? So he's answering the charge that he's blaspheming. Best I can do. Mason. Is, is there also kind of an implicit criticism in uh, verse 38 when he says, you know, if I do these works... Even if you don't believe me, which I take to mean believe that I am who I claim to be, the Son of God, is at least believe the works. He's saying you're so caught up in your prejudices and, and misconceived ideas that you can't even do what everybody else is doing. At least they believe the works. As shallow as that is, they've at least got that, and you can't even manage to do that. Okay, good point. Yeah. <laughs> Are the other words there in verse 38, like the miracles? Miracles and just general good things he did from the Father. Perhaps. At least his miracles. Okay. Look at these last three verses. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, many believed in him there. So, you know, this is a pretty great testimony. You know, what John said about Jesus was true. And uh, many, many believed in him. So that's where he is. This is kind of uh, his last retreat from Jerusalem before he finally comes in for the, for the last time, as far as we can tell in the gospel. Comments and questions through chapter 10. Ben? Why did he go back to Safe place. No. He never performed signs here. I don't know the answer to that. He doesn't specify that he did, but he may have. Certainly, they know about him performing signs somewhere or other. Other thoughts, JD. Are we supposed to put something together here that John didn't do signs, yet people believed him? Jesus did do signs, people didn't believe him. It, it, it seems a little unusual to bring that up. They're, what they're saying in verse 41, if there's not a lesson to learn. Perhaps. I'm not sure about that. 
Roger. Is this sort of, I think it's sort of as a contrast to that these people believe the testimony of John. Yes. And, uh, and the other people, even though they see so many miracles that they have, that these people, they, I don't think Jesus did any miracles. They're just going by what John says. And they're believing. But, the, but I think they're saying... They, they are convinced that what John said is true by their contact with Jesus. Logan. By saying that uh, the things that John said were true, are they saying just the fact that John said Jesus was a Messiah or something more specific? Well, maybe everything John said about Jesus. Alan? Um, well, back in uh, verse 31, 32, um, it talks about how they pick up stones and stone him. I, I guess the thing that's really cool, I guess, is trusting God's control and his own control of the situation. And how, like, I guess most of us would probably be flinching when someone's about to throw stones at us. All right. Any other comments on chapter 10? Bill? You said that they had come to contact with Jesus. Was that here or prior to I'm saying even here. Yeah. He's staying there. So it seems to me like they're saying, wow, after experiencing Jesus, we can really tell that what John said about him is true. Okay. All right, chapter.